Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you probably realize that I'm obsessed with how leaders can move a community, and in particular, political figures. And today's guest is Ted Terry. He is the mayor of Clarkston, Georgia, and he's running for the U.S. Senate representing Georgia. And if you recognize the name, yes, he is the guy from Queer Eye and has made some bold and progressive changes in his city of Clarkston and is bringing his un apologetic vision for a greater future to his candidacy. And personally, I think whether you care about politics or not, if anything about society pisses you off, that is an indicator that you are actually the person that has the power to change it. And local politics is where your voice carries the most weight. So I was really grateful to have Mayor Ted on my show and help explain more about how the process works, his approach to change, and I thought his guidance on how we can make the most impact was spot on. And I wanted to pivot for a second because I have a major announcement. And this past weekend, I was in a uh, like a business workshop with Kim Shaper. I got a chance to interview her earlier in the podcast, and she's an influencer and a fitness and health coach and does hormone reset programs. She's really industrious. She's done some really great things in the space. And I decided to join this kind of this business workshop with her. And as we kind of whiteboarded out, you know, what's important to me? What am I hoping to accomplish? How does the podcast show up in the world? And one of the things that kept coming up is I really want to elevate other people's voices. I want people to be able to share their stories. And there are some things that I've I've really taken to. I really enjoy the process of putting together a podcast and the finished product, but even all this stuff on the back end. So I get asked all the time and people will say, you know, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. I really like what you're doing. How do I get started? Is it hard? How do I figure it out? Where do I even begin? And so we came up with a concept that I'm actually going to launch a podcast program and it's going to be called Press Play Podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer a six-week program where people can sign up. And even if they don't have a concept, they just feel like they have more to give and they're not sure how to do it. They have they have more impact that they want to make. They feel like they may not be living up to their potential and feel like maybe they can reach other people and get a movement going, get a community started. So that's where I come in. So I'm going to be, uh, like I said, I'm going to be offering a six-week course. So everything from concept to publishing and everything in between and help take it step by step. I think with my own podcast journey, um, I spent a lot of money on, on stuff I didn't need, on things that I did need, things that worked, and things that were less expensive than some of the other options, but uh, were able to work to be able to put out good quality content. And if you've talked to me for five seconds, or if you've interviewed with me, you know that I am obsessed with good quality. I'm obsessed with good content. 
And I want to make sure that the audio is fantastic because if it's not, if it sounds like, you know, I listen to a podcast and it feels like I'm eavesdropping on somebody's conversation in the kitchen, I'm tuning out. And so I want to have a program that is specific to having that message be heard. So whether you're thinking about a sports podcast or interviews kind of like my style or a narrative or storytelling podcast or true crime. There's so many options, but I think you it's a great opportunity as we look to the new decade that we are literally starting a new decade in just a couple months and how do you want to show up in it? So I'm going to be there to help. Um, please stay tuned for more details. And in the meantime, I cannot wait for you to listen to my interview with Ted Terry, Mayor Ted. Uh, He was awesome. So thank you, thank you, thank you, and stay tuned. I'm ready. Okay, great. So we are here today with Ted Terry, not just any Ted Terry, but Mayor Ted Terry. And uh, and I'm so excited to have you in the hot seat today, um, a little left of center. And, you know, I always say, people always ask, is it a news podcast? Is it a political podcast? And it's not. Um, I interview culture changers. However, the podcast was born of frustration of the political environment. And so I was able to somehow finagle Ted Terry, who is running for U.S. Senate, um, into into the lair, into the hair lair, um, and talk a little bit more about your election and your race and your journey as mayor of Clarkston, Georgia, uh, one of the youngest mayors. Is it? Are you the youngest in all of Georgia? No, there's a few younger mayors out there, um, but I'm, I'm 36 years old now. I was 30 when I first got elected. So, wow. So I've gotten older, you know, since then. People <laughs> seem to get younger. Yeah, that happens, <laughs> I guess. And I, I think what's interesting about you is, um, is you are you're running for U.S. Senate right now. There are seven others, seven others who have declared, um, uh, you know, like running for U.S. Senate in mm-hmm. Georgia. Why you? Well, I think we need um, new energy and a new direction in Washington. Yeah. Quite frankly, um, the largest voting block in America is the um, the under 35-year-old voting block, which I used to be a part of until about a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, just the, the younger generation, whether it's the millennial generation, um, you know, Gen Z, um, I'm kind of known as actually as a, a, a zillennial. Um, a sort zillennial? Of a, yeah, kind of Gen X, um, <laughs> millennial um, an elder millennial, you know, someone who remembers when there was no Facebook, yeah. uh, you know, when we didn't have cell phones, when we if you told someone you were going to meet them somewhere, you actually had to go meet them, you know, there, yeah. <laughs> if you weren't there, you had to figure out how to let them know you, you had left. Um, but um, the, the, the median age of the U S Senate right now is over 60 years old. So you've been a mayor for six years and you're mayor of Clarkston, Georgia, which is the most ethnically diverse square mile in all of America. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we're, we're definitely known as, um, you know, there definitely are, are uh, very diverse places all over America. Um, I was at a, a UN co- uh, conference in New York with a group of, you know, mayors from around the world. And I got up and talked about how Clarkson's known as the most ethnically diverse square mile in America. And uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio was there and he got up next and, you know, said, well, you know, uh, five stops on a New York subway line <laughs> is the most ethnically diverse square right. mile in America. And I, you know, I'll give them that. But, you know, the, the reason, ref- uh, 
refugees have been coming um, and been resettled to Clarkston over the last 40 plus years. And so you literally can chart the course of human and world events through people who have fled war, violence, um, cartel, um, gangs, uh, persecution, religious, political persecution, increasingly climate disruption. And people from those countries around the world have started their lives over uh, in Clarkston. So how how did they find out about Clarkston, and how did it become so ethnically diverse? Well, the Refugee Act of 1980 uh, was signed into law by Jimmy Carter. Um, it's been uh, a bipartisan effort, really, you know, going back to um, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. I mean, just you go through the last, you know, several presidents, and supporting refugees has been something the Republicans and Democrats, um, you know, were, uh, um, you know, didn't... Uh, quibble over about politics. And so the the, the federal government um, works with resettlement agencies to actually place refugees in, you know, uh, communities that one welcome them that have given you know local consent um, but where they're going to thrive and they're going to be able to you know become new Americans because refugees are the the most highly vetted immigrants to this country um, they are legal permanent residents uh, lawful permanent residents um, they have a pathway to citizenship and so we we generally call refugees new Americans because by the time they get here they're no longer refugees they are on track to become Americans yeah but I, what I think is amazing is is since you become mayor in uh, six years ago, you are in your second term, right? Mm-hmm. Or second term. Oh. And you have raised the minimum wage to uh, $15 an hour. Um, you have decriminalized marijuana use. Mm-hmm. You have um, created election day or made election day a holiday. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think there are some other things, but it was very mm-hmm. progressive, um, progressive, uh, progressive move. Um, and I also feel like you have been underestimated probably your whole life uh, when it comes to politics, but somehow you keep um, keep breaking through, especially when you are a white male, uh-huh. you know, with refugees, with people that may or may not relate to you. So how do you get through? How do you get through? How do you convince people how are you able to do that? Well, you know, my, my philosophy of leadership is, uh, is lead by example. Um, quite frankly, the um, I was introduced to the the Dao Di Ching uh, years ago, and I remember reading this uh, this passage in there that talked about how you know good leaders are loved by the people, but great leaders are those whose people hardly know they exist. And a, a great leader goes and lives with the people, works with the people, spends times with the people, and at the end of the day, when the task is done, the people look around and say, "Look, we did it all by ourselves." And to me, that is an indication of just because you have a title or, you know, momentary uh, power, it does not make you better than everybody else. Everyone is a leader in their own right. And I'll never forget going to the grand opening of the the Center for Civil and Human Rights here in Atlanta uh, years ago and, and, you know, walking through this, these exhibits of um, how the civil rights movement you know, got started in Atlanta and how it spread to the rest of the of the country. And there was a saying that came out. It was never attributed to any one leader, but it was a saying that came out of the movement that said, don't tell me what you believe, show me what you have done, and then I will tell you what you believe. And so that really stuck with me because, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, um, necessarily, you know, what platforms you're running on or, you know, ideas and vision you have, but if you're not willing to actually implement it and fight for it and, you know, to improve to people that, you know, you're leading by example, that you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, walk the walk, um, then, you know, it, it just, to me, it was, 
you know, it becomes you're just another politician. You're just someone else who is making a lot of promises but not delivering. And so that's what we tried to do in Clarkston. We knew that we couldn't solve all the issues that were happening around our country, but we knew that we had control, at least in our one little square mile, and we were going to just lead by example, show the rest of the world um, how we, you know, um, wish to, you know, see the future society that we want to live in, and we sought out to um, to build that. Yeah, that... Uh... I love that thought too. And I wonder how you become a leader that is not seen. I need to think through that too. And <laughs> some of you may recognize Mayor Ted um, because you were on Queer Eye um, in the first season. And I got to watch it this past, um, this past weekend. And it was, it was so endearing and it was so funny that you had this huge beard where you straight up looked homeless, you know? <laughs> it was this raggedy beard, and you called it the resistance beard. And so the Queer Eye guys, you know, kind of cleaned you up and, you know, kind of helped you bring out your own style in a way that um, that you present um, in, in a way that's you, but are able to present in a way that can, I don't know, help you in, in politics. And I think somewhere you said that you have been in politics since you were 17 years old. And I, you know, I'm looking at you with the resistance beard, you know, you don't look like a politician, and that could be your greatest asset. So how did you get started in, uh, in politics? Well, I would like to say it was for some noble cause, but um, it was for a girl. And, uh, Is that they, right? <laughs> yep, I was uh, dating. I was a you know I was a big runner in high school, and that was the, what I was going to sp- spend my life doing was running long distance. Um, and I met a girl in high school who was my high school and college girlfriend, and uh, she would invite me over to her uh, grandparents' house um, after um, after church on Sunday, and we would have Sunday dinner, and all of her family were talking about politics and foreign affairs and this issue and that issue, and I had no idea what they were talking about. I was sixteen years old, you know, almost 17. And I was like, gosh, you know, I was like, you need to tell me, I asked my girlfriend, I said, you need to like, I need to read something. I need to know what's going on. So she's like, all right, read this, read that. And so the more I began to sort of educate myself about the the world (laughs) and, uh, you know, particularly politicians and learn about politicians who had a lot of power, but weren't really doing much to, um, to solve those issues. The more I kind of got, you know, energized and the more I said, well, this is really an important endeavor. This is things that we should actually spend our time on. And so I just kind of took it and ran with it. And by the time I got to college, I, um, you know, was involved in a lot of political organizations. Um, I was president of my nutrition club and, um, and my, um, food science and human nutrition degree program. Um, I was very interested in trying to like move, you know, ideas and debates and, um, activism forward. And were you good at debates? Were you was a master I, debater? Um, I'm no. throwing in something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was always I was always behind the scenes. Um, I, I I preferred. Um, I didn't like to give speeches, or that was not my style. My my, my style was like you know, he, we're going to talk about these things. And we're going to get really like down into the weeds. <laughs> yeah. Um. And you know, so I kind of just it. It was interesting. I really probably you know got my biggest education during the 2004. Uh, John Kerry, George W. Bush election, because before that, I was spending most of my time protesting the Iraq war. And I was part of this you know, anti-war movement at the University of Florida. And we did a lot of, you know, films and, you know, speakers. And we did like all this, like things that I read about, like, you know, in the civil rights movement, in, 
you know, the anti-war movement in the 60s and 70s, I thought, oh, this is how you win elections. You just have a lot of protests. <laughs> <laughs> and then George W. Bush got reelected. And I, I was like, wait a second, we did everything we were supposed to do. We, we marched and we had rallies and we got loud. And then I, you know, began to realize and learn that you win elections by talking to voters. Mm. <laughs> as simple as that. And so I kind of set out, by the time I moved to Atlanta in 2005, I, you know, uh, uh, got a job with the Georgia Sierra Club as a door-to-door canvasser. I started literally from the very bottom, the lowest sort of most basic role that you can do in a campaign, go knock on doors and talk to strangers. <laughs> what is the Georgia Sierra Club? Well the, the, well, the Georgia Sierra Club is part of the Sierra Club, which is the country's oldest and largest environmental organization. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you know John Muir and uh, who also had his own resistance beard uh, back in you know 1890s. Him and <laughs> he he convinced Teddy Roosevelt to you know start the national parks um, system. Oh wow! And, to start, and pr- protect Yosemite and eventually led to the protecting the Grand Canyon and the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and so the Sierra Club has been you know on the forefront. Over a million people um, you know around the country are you know, part of trying to save the environment. Um, and most recently it's been about stopping climate change, which is really what got me involved in the Sierra club. Cause at that time it was taught, we were talking about, uh, vice president Dick Cheney's energy task force and how we're going to build 400 new coal plants around the country. And the Sierra club said, no, we need to actually be shutting down coal plants. And yeah. so, um, I was part of the early campaign door to door in Atlanta to start talking, not just about, um, this crazy idea called the Beltline. <laughs> we were knocking on doors, and I actually got arrested in Buckhead. Spent nine hours in Atlanta jail um, canvassing voters to say, "Hey, we need to like support this idea of the of the Beltline." Wow! Um, but also, how do you get arrested for? I know, right? That's what I. That's what I want to know. <laughs> I Are you naked? I remember, Are you streaking? No, we were just. You know, it was. Uh, look, um, you know, I. Uh, some people really do not like to be bothered. Um, at their doors, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, we, we was so funny. We had we would walk around with a, a sheet of paper, and it had it had uh, ten Supreme Court decisions over the last hundred years upholding the right of people to knock on doors. And uh, this one, I this one woman, you know, was mad that I was in her neighborhood, and um, I said, "Well, you know, look, you know, I'm I'm allowed to be here. I'm not soliciting. I'm actually this is a political campaign, so um, I have the right to you know do you know to knock on your door." And you know, Justice Hugo Black said that you know a vigorous enlightenment was ever to, to triumph over slothful ignorance. You know, then we were you know we we needed to create a system in our um, a freedom of speech in our country that we were able you know to have those allowances to you know disturb people. And she didn't like that. I think she was thought I was calling her slothfully ignorant. <laughs> um, and so I think she called the, the cops. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we, we, uh, we got, I got bailed out, went to the, you know, the court the next day, the, the, the solicitor threw it out because it wasn't a legitimate right, right, charge, right. obviously. And we went back to that exact same neighborhood <laughs> that day. I didn't knock on her door again, of course. Um, but we kept on knocking on doors because, um, you know, we believed in that, that idea, that mission. And so that's kind of how I realized was like, this is how you win election. This is how you actually change things. You have to go out and talk to people yeah. and listen to them and have dialogue. And then, you know, you want to try to persuade them, but you do a lot more listening than you do talking. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering, so you have decided to throw your hat in the ring for US Senate. I know Stacey a lot of people were calling for Stacey Abrams to run. She declined. Um, and it's a it's a hard job. You know, what made you choose that that was the right path for you? Well, um I knew so I knew that I did want to run for office one day when I was, you know, at my 
uh, girlfriend's grandparents' dinner table. <laughs> That's those Sunday afternoons. Um, but I didn't know, you know, when or where. And so I just kind of began to, you know, work um, in politics. So whether it was starting out door to door, being a, a field organizer for Barack Obama's campaign here in Georgia in 2007, 2008, fundraising for a U.S. congressman, um, uh, running a statewide campaign, you know, consulting and helping candidates for sheriff and city commission and school board and state house and state senate. Wow! And then eventually found myself in Clarkston, you know, and you know was encouraged by my neighbors to run for mayor, and I won and defeated an incumbent mayor who was forty years older than I was. And um, you know, and and now in my second term, you know, there's things that I I accomplished most of what I wanted to do. <laughs> You know, there's still things that kind of keep coming up and, you know, a big part of what I've struggled with as a mayor and what I've heard from other mayors is that there's only so much that we can do at the local level. You know, we can deal with police, with potholes, with minimum wage for our city employees. We can make commitments to 100% clean energy. We can decriminalize marijuana. Uh, we can make our own election day holiday. But I want to see all of those things, all the things that we've done in Clarkston, I want to do for the rest of Georgia. I want to do for the rest of the country. And there aren't enough voices in Washington that are talking about the things that I've been fighting for, um, you know, my my entire adult life. And so I want to raise those issues in this campaign. Um, I feel that my entry into this race has already caused, you know, the Democratic Party to say, you know, are we the progressive party in Georgia? Or mm. are we going to be the party that, you know, continues to sort of seek out to only persuade the the moderate middle voter, the very narrow slice of the electorate that we think that we might have to win over to win statewide. But Stacey Abrams proved that if you talk to all the voters and you engage people and you run on the issues, you're unapologetically a Democrat, um, that you can turn people out who thought that the Democratic Party didn't care about them or who didn't didn't think the politics mattered. And that's a big part of this campaign is um, is talking about the issues that um, that voters are demanding that we talk about. And we saw the largest uh, youth turnout, the largest multi-ethnic intergeneration, intergenerational turnout with Stacey Abrams' election. And that was in a midterm, right? And so we're going into a presidential year where I think the Democratic Party, my theory of change is that we need to run as bold, progressive Democrats because that will lead to the greatest uh, turnout of voters in Georgia's history, and that's how we're going to win uh, statewide. Yeah, and I think we're at a very critical point right now as well. It is such a big turning point. Um, I think from uh, a state like Georgia, which is reddish, <laughs> it's like purple reddish um, at this point, uh, and, and especially in major metropolitan cities, which typically tend to lean Democrat, um, and rural areas tend to be straight up red. Um, it's, it's a hard task. However, I think, um, I think what's so funny is that there are still Stacey Abrams signs all over people's yards, you know, <laughs> even a year after the election. They're like, uh, they're, we're just going to leave these up for the next four years. <laughs> <laughs> just so you're clear on where they stand. Um, but I think we're at a pivotal point. And the way I found you was through the, how we flipped the Senate campaign. So I'm a big fan of Sean King. I talk about Sean King a lot. Um, Sean King is one of the, uh, leaders of Black Lives Matter, Matter, Black Lives Matter. And he's done a lot of, um, a work specifically around, um, a police brutality and, uh, several other things, but he, um, talks and, and breaks down, um, 
what it takes to flip the Senate um, at this point, that it is an incredibly divided nation. Um, and again, this podcast was literally born of my own frustration of getting involved with campaigns, getting involved with things I felt really passionate about. Um, and the election didn't go my way um, in several elections. And while that's fine, I felt like... Um, I felt like voting once every two years was not enough, you know, and how could I contribute? How could I contribute, whether it's politics or otherwise, um, in a way that's going to move a community? And so that's why I'm so proud to have you here and thankful that you're here. But the How We Flip the Senate campaign is, um, the, it's this organization that's, that is deeply organized. They have a, a, a very complex plan as complex as the problem, which is how you move a community. They have energized people and they are continually asking for resources. So that's kind of his formula for how do you, how do you move a community? How do you flip the Senate? How do you get things done? Um, and one of the people that they, so they've gone through and kind of combed through all the candidates in each state where there are seats that are open and they chose you for Georgia. And so that's how you kind of came on my radar. Um, how did that, how did that happen? I mean, there's several other candidates and if you could explain to me, so in Georgia, uh, David Perdue is up for reelection. He is the incumbent. He is a Republican candidate. And then Johnny Isaacson is the other Republican um, senator that is stepping down. So effectively, there are two seats open. Do you run against David Perdue or whatever seat you possibly can? How does it work? Yeah, you have to qualify for one seat or the other. And so uh, what's the difference between any seat? Um, well, so David Perdue's seat will be a six-year term. So whoever gets elected to that one will be a six-year term. The Isaacson seat will have to complete uh, the remainder of the term and then run again in two years. So it's an abbreviation. <laughs> so basically, if you're whoever's running for the Isaacson seat is uh, going to have to uh, run this election um, because it's uh, a special generous uh, what's called a jungle primary or a jungle general. Everyone's on the ballot all at once in November for that seat. And if no one gets 50% plus one, they have to run in the runoff in January of yeah. 2021, which if anyone's ever worked on a runoff election in the dead of winter in Georgia, you'll know that these are very, very difficult times yeah. um, and then run again in two years. And so um, there's lots of people who are um, considering running for that seat. Um, I'm sticking uh, with the David Perdue seat. Um, I think he is the most vulnerable. Um, his approval rating uh, is below 50%. Uh, he's tied himself to Donald Trump. Donald Trump's approval rating is very low in Georgia, and it continues to get lower um, the more that we learn about what's what he's really been doing um, you know, in office as more people come out and, and, and speak up about what's happening. Um, and, you know, and I think to, to, to the, the, your point about Flip the Senate and Sean King, I mean, they're looking for progressive candidates. They're not looking for the establishment, corporate funded, um, you know, typical Senate candidates. They're looking for grassroots power candidates, people who will be holden to the people and not to special interest lobbyists or corporations that quite frankly, you know, run, run Washington right now because they fund most of those, of those campaigns. So explain this for me. Let's hold for a second. Cause this is something I'm really interested about. And I, you need to educate me as somebody that is in politics. So when I think about corporate PACs, when I think about uh, huge corporate donors for whatever candidate, 
And then you have people that are doing grassroots campaigns like you are doing. Um, and you're continually asking and fundraising. Um, and I was just thinking yesterday that I must have gotten, I don't know, at least 35 emails asking for money, you know, not from you, but from, you know, from any candidate, any cause, whatever I may have expressed interest in. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so fatigued, you know? And I'm wondering, how do you win on grassroots when you don't have that big money? Like, what is the path to success? It, it sounds very noble, but the reality is, you know, we, you and I were just talking about this before, is if you have a million dollars in the bank and you have flexibility for your own lifestyle and have the ability to have corporate money, how do you get the word out and be effective? Well, you have to build up that grassroots base to, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And I think you certainly see that with presidential campaigns. There's several presidential candidates on the Democratic side that, you know, consistently have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are like, yep, I'll give you five bucks this month or this week or, you know, every two days, um, you know, people who are, are committed to it. And so when you multiply, you know, a million people times, you know, $25, $30, you know, every time you ask for it, 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 it can equal some of that corporate PAC money. It's, it's, it's unclear about whether it could actually, you know, equal the, the dark money, um, the, the unregulated, um, aspect of our political system. And, you know, that's the, probably the biggest worry that I think a lot of people have is, you know, if you have a hundred thousand people that are supporting Ted for Senate and they're giving him, you know, 10, 15, you know, 20, a hundred dollars every time he asks for it, then he'll have the money he needs to, you know, to win this election. But a, um, a, a corporate, you know, independent expenditure could come in and spend $3 million, you know, just like just write a check yeah. for $3 million and dump, you know, negative ads, um, on whoever's running, you know, and, sure. and then, and you know, they're, they're going to, no matter what Democrat is the nominee against David Perdue, they're going to say that they're socialists, that they're far radical left, that they're going to, you know, turn us into Venezuela, you know, and into, you know, Maoist, you know, China, and then, you know, basically that the world's going to end. And they're going to have all the money um, they need to tell that to tell that narrative. Um, you know, our response um, or my theory of change, I think, in terms of running for this statewide office is um, is about movement building. And, you know, politics, I learned this, you know, when, going back to that 2004 presidential campaign when we, we lost. And I was like, man, I can't believe that we lost this election. And, you know, I was, that was, was, was going to change everything. And then Barack Obama came along. And I was like, wow, here's, here's someone who has a vision, who's talking about something bigger than we are, that if we all come together, that we can change this country for the better. And then we won. And it was the most amazing, you know, like, year of my life. And then I think a lot of us kind of sort of said, all right, we won. We can go back to our lives now. <laughs> we can kind of like relax. Yeah. And then the Tea Party wave happened. And so I, you know, I realized then that um, politics is not um, a finite game. It's an, an infinite game. And the purpose of politics and the purpose of being involved in movements and movements for change um, is that you, you the, the purpose is to keep keep going, is to keep playing the game. And, you know, I think, um, you know, going back to you know, mentioning Sean King, it's interesting because Sean King actually, you know, volunteered and worked for a refugee resettlement group in Clarkston. That's how I got connected with him years mm -hmm. ago. He actually worked in Clarkston um, and when we lived in Atlanta. And he, you know, he knew my work through the decriminalization of marijuana, you know, trying to push that movement in, in Georgia. And so I see my campaign, you know, one, as bringing 
movements together, whether it's the environmental movement, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's the end student debt movement, whether it is the March for Our Lives, you know, ending gun violence for all movements. I mean, you know, these policy matters and these policy issues that we're talking about, um, you know, when you begin to intersect all of these movements, it becomes very, very powerful. And the objective of those movements is not necessarily to win an election. It's to show that we actually have a critical mass of people in this country who want to see change and will not stop demanding change until we see it. So I think it is such a divided political environment. Um, How do you handle trolls? How do you handle the opposition? You know, you're calling people, um, you're calling donors, you're out there, you're going to Tifton, you said this this uh, this Saturday, and areas that you've probably never been to before in Georgia. So how do you how do you handle that? Like, is your goal to convince is to diffuse, you know, their anger or hate based on whatever they feel? Or is it to educate? Or is it to convince them? Or do you spend your energy there? Well, I have. Um, I'm going to places that I've been going to for a decade. <laughs> okay. Um, I've uh, I've worked and lived and traveled all over Georgia the last 15 years, and um, the um, what I've realized and what I've seen is that there's a lot of really amazing people out there, and you know the the, the beauty of of running statewide is you get to meet people who you don't get to meet in your ordinary lives mm-hmm. you know, in your sort of usual routine. And what I can say is that there's people on the coast, there's people out in rural, you know, southeast Georgia, um, agriculture country, people up in North Georgia who are retirees, people who live in, you know, the suburbs and exurbs of Atlanta, um, who, um, who can't pay for, you know, their, can't afford their deductibles for their health insurance, who are looking at, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in, in student debt. Um, who spend two hours of their lives in traffic going between their home and their work, and they have to live that far outside of Atlanta because mm-hmm. that's the that's where they can afford to buy a home. Um, and you know, I, I kind of take a, sm- a small town mayor approach to it. Um, it's a very empathetic view, and when people tell me about their their issues, I'm I, I you know I, I I feel it. You know, I try to encapsulate it in what I'm talking about in my campaign, because this campaign isn't about what I want to do. <laughs> my, this campaign is about what I'm hearing, what other people want me to do. What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing that uh, people on the coast are worried about climate change. Um, I'm hearing that you know farmers um, are looking at a trade war and looking at a changing you know, uh, weather landscape as well as economic landscape. And they're looking for ways to diversify, you know, um, and to, you know, bring, breathe new life into their communities. Um, I'm looking at, um, people who live in some of the poorest neighborhoods of Atlanta who can't afford to pay their, their energy bills, um, um, because they're on a fixed income, but energy bills, you know, go up every single year and they're even voting, you know, this month to raise energy rates by almost 15% uh, through Georgia Power's Public Service Commission rate case. Um, you know, I'm talking to high schoolers who are like, you know, look, you know, we, we've seen some of the worst mass shootings, you know, in our lifetimes in the last few years. And, you know, mm. we, we know that other countries don't have these issues because they have laws in place that stop it from happening. You know, um, so um, we were just talking this morning about the fact that Georgia is the fifth highest state for children who have no health insurance. And it actually, we had the, the second highest increase this last year. And so here we are 
the wealthiest country, uh, you know, in the history of the world, and we have a healthcare system that actually, you know, leaves children, you know, from having basic access to a pediatrician and to healthcare. And it's like, you know, how, how can we actually say that this is something that we're okay with? And so I think, you know, at some point there has to be this, you know, acknowledgement that there's a lot of people out there that are looking around and they're looking, they're thinking that no one, you know, no one is actually listening to me. And so the least I could do is to say, you know, I'm here to listen to you and, and take what you're, what you want and what you need, um, in the, in, in the society that you want to live in and try to help move it forward, you know, in this, you know, the swamp that exists in DC that is still very corrupt and one person is not going to change that, um, you know, completely. But, you know, the goal again is to build that critical mass of voices and people that are demanding change and, and we're not going to give up until we actually see it. Yeah, you need momentum for that too. Mm-hmm. What were you most surprised by? You know, you, you got into this race maybe a couple months ago, so it's mm-hmm. fairly new, right? So um, what are you surprised by from talking to voters, from talking to residents? That you weren't expecting. Well, um, I was down at Waycross, Georgia, a couple of weeks ago, and um, there's a lot of young people down there who, you know, basically I asked them. I said, um, you know, uh, what are you going to do when you graduate high school? And they're like, we're going to get out of town because there's nothing here for us. Mm. And and I've, I've 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 heard that and experienced that from a lot of places around Georgia. That's you know, Atlanta is where you know, the action is, that's where the jobs are, that's where the opportunities are. And so we have this, uh, you know, this reality of a huge part of our state that just has no, um, or very little um, economic, cultural, or, you know, just, you know, societal sort of advancement or opportunity. And, you know, and I actually met a couple conservative uh, college students who were involved in like an agricultural program. And, you know, they asked me about the Green New Deal, because they're like, oh, no, the Green New Deal, that sounds really, you know, that's, that's socialist, isn't it? It's <laughs> <That sounds> like a <laughs> government takeover. <laughs> and I said, no, the, the Green New Deal, to me, is not the creation of a Green New Deal bureau um, headquartered in Washington. It's a decentralized, you know, investment in America. It is a uh, local leader's who ha- who know the local problems they have, you know, you know, with their own local solutions, you know, bringing economic opportunity and investment to places around Georgia that have haven't seen that kind of investment. And for example, there was a woman who came up from Twiggs County, a very rural county east of of, uh, of Macon, um, and they had a, a large scale solar farm installed there um, about a year and a half ago, and it doubled their tax revenues. In one year, bringing mm. jobs, bringing um, additional support for their school system that was having budget issues, vital services, and and she came up to the Public Service Commission to plead with the commissioners to please, we want more solar energy in our county. Now, this is a conservative woman, and we could argue all day long about whether climate change is really a threat or just maybe a weather pattern. Um, but what she did, she did know is that a two thousand acre solar farm in her part of um, Georgia brought millions of dollars in wow. investment to, to that had, you know, that she had never, they, they had not seen there in decades. And so, you know, when I talk to a farmer or someone in rural Georgia, we talk about, 
um, support for solar energy investment. Georgia's the third best state for solar energy. I mean, we literally can be installing solar all over Georgia. We produce so much of it that we would sell it to other states. Um, and so, you know, we could become the, you know, the Texas <laughs> or the Saudi Arabia of solar energy, right. you know, in America. Um, we have a lot of land. We have a lot of sun. Those are the two things you need for solar energy to work. And so, you know, that surprises me. Um, I was I, I anticipated that I could bring that message to conservative voters in rural Georgia. But having a young a young person say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that would actually be really good for our community. Yeah. So <laughs> so I think from a strategy perspective, you need tiny wins and you need momentum. And so what is your strategy? How do you win this election in a crowded in a crowded landscape? Well, you got to run on the issues. Um, you got to win a primary first. So I have a. When's a, your primary? In May. Yeah. May 2020. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, I think um, the, the, I'm taking this, the, the, the Stacey Abrams playbook to heart. And she, you know, was, I think, very clear that, you know, we don't need to sort of shift and sort of triangulate our message and our issue to just the voters that we think we need to persuade. You know, we need to run as Democrats. And we're not going to win a general election by, you know, giving sort of half-hearted or, you know, only maybe kind of will deal with student debt or the healthcare crisis or climate change or gun violence. Maybe we'll just sort of pick around the edges no, we actually want to introduce policies and pass policies that will solve these things and change things once and for all. And that's going to inspire people. And so that's, that is my goal is to, you know, inspire hundreds of thousands of Democratic primary voters to one, not drag them to the polls, like we're always dragging voters to the polls, but send them running to the polls, um, because they'll have a candidate to vote for who represents, you know, their, their future Georgia. Have you been able to see that happen in real time? of people just educating, being educated on the issues, meeting you, you know, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, I mean, look, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> happens every day and people are like, I had no idea that, you know, anything about Clarkston or, oh, I just watched Queer Eye. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get that a lot? <laughs> oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people stop you. Um, I can, I have literally been in downtown Chicago, um, in Oakland, in um in New York City and people stop me at a coffee shop or on the street and they're like Mayor Ted Terry from Queer <laughs> I was on Jekyll Island um at a, a a city a Georgia City's conference and the barista at the the coffee shop in the the hotel was like are you Mayor Ted from Queer Eye? <laughs> that must be you must be so glad that you were able to do that. Yeah, well I mean look as a as a politician I embarrass myself on a daily basis. So you know doing a reality show was um uh, just like any other day. And, uh, but no, I think, you know, like a lot of times politicians sort of seem unapproachable, you know, they seem sort of like kind of up there, maybe on a pedestal and they're, you don't they're, seem they're that different. way at all. You seem very like, like I, I could hang out and have a beer with you, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, um, that's what you got to do when you're a small town mayor, you know, you gotta, you know, be approachable. And, um, so that's, that's the attitude I've always taken to politics is that, you know, if we, if we if we bifurcate our our leaders from the people they're supposed to lead, um, then you know we've um, we've we've <laughs> we've created uh, roadblocks in our democracy of, of truly you know representation. And so, you know, people can literally watch that episode on Queer Eye and they can know everything they need to know about who I am as a person. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I think like so th those kind of moments where when you know people you know found out 
um, three years ago about Clarkston because we were the first city in Georgia to decriminalize marijuana possession. We were, we were challenging Governor Nathan Deal and the Attorney General to say that, yes, local cities have the power under state law to decide to just give a ticket for marijuana possession instead of an arrest and a night in jail and a, um, a, a record. Yeah, it's really expensive. I think it's it's also hit a critical mass where, you know, they're closing down the jail in Atlanta. So I think there are really positive things happening that are moving towards, a, you know, a, a more balanced state. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm proud that, you know, mm. that, that Clarkson led that because now 13 other cities have followed our model, model ordinance. The city of Atlanta, South Fulton, Chambly, Augusta, Macon, Savannah, Statesboro, even the small town of Ludowisi, Georgia, have all followed our ordinance. And, you know, this is the kind of, this is the, the, the message that I, you know, want people to understand is that, you know, there's been so many moments in our political history where someone said, uh, I don't know if we can do that. You know, I don't know. That sounds like it might be a little risky. And my attitude is if, if it's the right thing to do and, and it's, um, if it's the right thing to do, then you need to speak out about it. And if it's not popular right now, well, that's okay. That's why we're speaking out about it because yeah. we're trying to make people know. Cause back three years ago, people said, Oh no, mayor, you can't do that. You can't, you can't, this is, this is a state issue. And I've been hearing for years, you know, Democrats, you know, we need to end mass incarceration. We need to, to end the war on drugs. And so, of course, I looked around and said, well, no one's doing anything about it. Or no one's actually changing any policies to change the war on drugs. What can we do in Clarkston? All right, here, we, after, you know, six months of research, we said, here, we can actually just change our municipal code and make it a ticket-only offense. So can you talk for a second, because one of the other reasons, the secondary reason for starting this podcast is that my hope, and one of the things I learned is that how important it is to get involved in local politics. So you have people from all over the country, nation, world, whatever, listening to this podcast. And I feel like... um we have a lot more to give. I think a lot of us are maybe underestimating our own contributions of what we can do. But I also think people don't know how to get started. So if there's something that's important to them, what contributions really help move the needle in your estimation? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's time and money. Those are the, the two main things. Um, so and- let's talk about time. So time is, is one thing. So I'm thinking volunteering. But what if it's something else? Like how do how does somebody connect with the right place? Like I said, I've gotten like twenty five emails to donate to every different cause possible, you know. But how do you choose? You go with what, what you're uh, most passionate about. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if there's an issue that if you can read a headline or listen to something on the radio and you hear that, and you're like, that is that makes me mad. That is something that needs to be changed. That is, there's an injustice mm. in my community, in the in the world that is just not right. Then you know you have to ask yourself, like, well, what am I doing to actually change that? And you know, every and again, like I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, um, you know, we all are our own leaders. We all can be leaders. We don't have to have a, a title, you know, or a elected position to be a leader. Um, and so, you know, if you have the, the mindset that to lead by example, (laughs) so let's start with that. You know, if you're, you're not willing to tell someone, 
you know, you need to do something about this if you're not willing to do it yourself. So let's start there. What are, what are you willing to do as an individual? And it could be something as simple as I'm going to actually just learn more about this issue. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're like, huh, I don't understand why Georgia is the second largest, um, has the second largest increase in, um, children without health insurance. You know, I don't understand why 11 rural hospitals have closed in Georgia in the last, you know, seven years, you know, why is that, you know, so kind of challenge yourself to be like, well, I need to actually understand this issue a little bit more. Um, I think that the other part of it is to, you know, do a lot of listening as well. So be willing to, you know, seek out people who maybe don't agree with you. (laughs) It's very hard and it's very, it's very easy in our, in the social media digital world to only surround yourself in your your bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the fun thing about campaigning is um, the, the, the the most effective tactic to win votes is you have to knock on doors. And when you knock on someone's door, you never know what you're going to get. And if you're willing, you know, to knock on someone's door and with the purpose of not trying to like, I'm going to tell you what's right. And this is what we're going to do. And you need to listen to me instead start with the, what I always tell my um, canvassers, you know, we're not here to tell people why I'm running. We're here to hear about what they care about, Mm. you know, and it's, it's, it's simple things that, you know, probably all of us already know about when we're, you know, you know, at a, a, you know, Halloween party, you know, or at a, you know, a, uh, a school function, you, you, you do small talk, you know, oh, where are you from? You know, how long you lived here? You know, what do you like about living here? What would you change? You know, those simple questions that you can ask people begin to open up people's minds to say, you know what, I don't know what I would change. Um, but start there. What would I change? What would you change? I love that of just starting, you know, if you if you look around and you're pissed off at something and say, well, what can I do? I think that's a really powerful, I'm going to totally strip that clip and put it in an audio thing for Instagram. But um, but I think what's, what's powerful there, what I'm trying to avoid is the path of apathy, that a lot of people will say, well, my contribution won't do anything. It won't make a difference. And so, you know, we get, we as in whoever, gets a lot of emails like sign this petition, you know, what actually works? You know, what actually, what actually makes a difference? So if I have an issue, what efforts are going to make the most difference? Um, <laughs> well, you know, look, I mean, you know, part of those petition signing things are just to, to basically, um, you know, build up your email list. Do those, um, so, so those don't really do anything, do they? Well, you know, it's, it's a, this is the, the, the inside scoop on campaigns is it's a, it's a volume business. Mm. And the more people that you ask, you know, earlier I was joking about, I have to, I have to call strangers for money. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got to call a lot of them because only a small percentage actually will say, yeah, I, I think I like what you're saying. I'll donate to your campaign. It's the same thing. There's a lot of people out there that get 35 emails a day and they're like, nah, I won't read that or nah, I won't donate this time. But, you know, st- statistically shown is been shown that at some point someone's going to be like, I'll give you 25 bucks, you know, and maybe that's kind of where they begin. And then, you know, the people who, at least on my campaign, anyone who's given me, you know, a dollar or more, I'm going to personally give them a phone call. Yeah. You know, that's how I found you. Yeah. (laughs) Or you found me, (laughs) you know, and say thank you. And because, you know, that's, I think, um, that is the, that leaves that, that's my goal is that I don't want just a bunch of, you know, um, names on a spreadsheet that say, oh, yeah, they gave me 15 bucks. And so therefore they're a grassroots donor. No, I actually want to know them and to hear from them. And because, you know, in this, in the philosophy of movement building, 
um, you you have a cause, but your cause doesn't um, isn't necessarily more important than someone else's cause. And so, how do you you know how do you square that? Like, sure. wait a second, like no, my issue is the most important issue. And the way that we build a movement is that we seek common cause with other people, and we find ways for our movement to join their movement. We find the ways that they intersect. And when you talk about equity, uh, inclusion, when you talk about justice, you know these are you know principles that a lot of the movements that are in this country right now that are kind of boiling up. Um, those are things that they care about. Yeah. And so you have to be willing, um, you know, to your point, like I've got my cause, I've got the thing that I care about, but I also want to try to find ways to bring other people into my movement. And, you know, the, there's this, another saying that, you know, has been in the activist world for years and years, and that's the, the change everything. We need everyone. And at some point we have to actually, you know, recognize that, you know, if I, even though I'm not black, Black lives do matter. Even though I don't live near a coal ash pond, environmental justice is important to me. Even though, you know, I, you know, I'm not in school anymore and I don't have to worry about school shootings necessarily. Those are things that that is a cause that I should care about. You know, we have to actually, you know, give a damn about each other um, and give a damn about people um, who are across this country who are crying out for some change, for some justice. Um, and, you know, particularly, and you, I think you alluded to it earlier, you know, as a, a white male, um, you know, there's, you know, a, a lot of privileges that I've been given, you know, throughout my life, throughout my life. Um, and I won't say I've been given everything. I'm not a millionaire. Um, I'm decidedly, you know, in the middle class. Um, but, you know, if we, we, if we use our power and privilege to empower other people to, you know, to rebalance the equation, to recognize that, all all human beings have, you know, the same potential, you know, to do and to be whatever we want, but recognize that the systems that we have in place in our society, the people that are, you know, deliberately creating uh, policies to hold down one group or the other, you know, if we change those, then we can, you know, create that equitable and just world that we all want to live in. It's more liberating. That's beautifully put. What do you do for fun? You've got a, you've got a, you need some stamina, bro, <laughs> for the next few months. Yeah, for the next, uh, yeah, next twelve months. Um, I love to travel. Um, I've had a, I've had the really, you know, fortunate opportunity as mayor of the most ethnically diverse square mile in America to participate in several um, international uh, delegations, international affairs types uh, of of work, whether it's. Uh, being a part of the global compact um, uh, on migration and refugees with a hundred plus mayors from around the world. I was in Marrakesh, Morocco last year, you know, um, with mayors from every continent who are all on the front lines of the migration and refugee crisis, just like Clarkston is. Um, and, you know, sp- spoken at the United Nations, you know, been to UNESCO world headquarters in Paris, you know, and just, you know, building ties with people around the world who, you know, are, you know, recognize that our diversity um, and diversity of our, 
you know, populations in our cities is actually the, the strongest aspect of our cities. Um, and you live and breathe politics. <laughs> you live and breathe issues, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. I, so I like to travel and I do CrossFit, you know. Oh, like do you the, really? Yeah, at least like three, try to do it three days a week, but you know. I did it for I, two I gotta, years and I never liked CrossFit, but I love the people. I'm still really close to the people that I did it with, you know? <laughs> well, I just don't have enough time. If I go to the LA Fitness or a, a gym by myself, I'll do, be there for two hours and not get anything done. But if I go to if I go to CrossFit or something that's just like, all right, you're here for an hour. You could do it for six minutes and have yeah. a six minute wad. That's right. <laughs> Be done. That's so true. That's so efficient. That's great. So um so how can people contribute to your mission? Yeah, they can check out my website at tedforgeorgia.com. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm even on even on TikTok. Um, I did the get up challenge. I don't know. That's what is it? Yeah. That's people it, ask, ask your middle schooler what TikTok is. Um, and they'll, they'll tell you. <laughs> no, I know what TikTok is. What is the get up challenge? Oh, it's, uh, it's where you got to do the, the, you know, the, um, what is it? You know, go and do the two step and cowboy. You know, I don't know the words. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a dance okay. that you do with that, with the song. Um, what's the name of the song? I forget the song. I think it's the, the get up. I don't know. I'm so old. I'm yeah. like, Oh, hashtag, what's that about? hashtag get up challenge. You'll find it. It's a bunch of kids and then a mayor, you know, doing a, doing a two-step dance. Oh, that's awesome. Do you find that you resonate easily with millennials, with younger, um, voters? Um, Yes and no. <laughs> you look like them. You know what I mean? Like you don't look like a stuffy old politician, you know? Yes. No, you look I very think, approachable. Yeah. I think that that is certainly the case. Um, most young people experienced with politicians are people who are a lot older than they are. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I'm a little bit closer, you know, to their perspective. Um, you know, like I was in high school when Columbine happened. Um, you know, so when I, you know, talk with the March for Our Lives students um, and talk about ending gun violence, you know, my entire, you know, from high school up until now has, you know, existed, you know, in this world where it's, you know, um, mass shootings are a, a more common and more likely, you know, possibility. And so, you know, there's, 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 there's generational connections. Um, again, as I was saying earlier, you know, like, I remember when there was no Facebook. <laughs> so I've got one foot in, you know, a, a generation that, you know, where we spent most of our time, you know, socializing face to face. Yeah. Yeah. What's that <laughs> it's, like? It's changed a little bit now. Um, <laughs> what do you need? What, um, what do you need? Do you need time, money, volunteers? What specifically do you need? Yeah. So, you know, we, um, my goal is to get to, um, uh, over, uh, 6,000 individual, uh, campaign contribute contributors by the end of the year. And so I'm asking everyone who's already contributed or supports my campaign, uh, you know, just go out and find two more people, you know, to be like, Hey, did you hear about mayor Ted? He's running for office in, in Georgia. He's running for us. Senate, you know, look at all the things that he's done, you know, decriminalizing marijuana, election day as a holiday, $15 minimum wage, you know, commitment to a clean energy. Um, you know, he's going to fight for us. You know, I'm, I'm donating to his campaign. You know, I want you to as well. <laughs> and that, that's, that's how we build a movement because, you know, if you really want to, I think you, you actually asked it earlier. I'll just say, here's the, here's the answer. You have to ask other people to, yeah. join, to join you. If you are willing to do something, then that's great. You are a leader. You are leading by example. Now you have to go out and tell other people about it, and assume that some people are going to be like, "No, nah, I'm good. I don't want. I don't want." You know, expect there's going to be some level of rejection. All right, that's life. Guess what? People are going to say no. <laughs> do you have rallies? Do Do you have rallies as a Senate race? Uh, Does that yeah, work? Pr- probably, probably later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. As that, it gets closer to it. Yeah, yeah. We um, yeah. You need more of like an organizational apparatus to 
put on those kind of things. Yeah, I have no <laughs> it's idea. Very, very, it's very decentralized <laughs> right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people can, you know, it's, we have a digital outreach tool that allows people to like, you know, sign into our system and to easily, um, you know, share some of our content, you know, with, you know, friends and family or on social media, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and we're actually uh, releasing a map, a mapping tool that has pinpointed, it's about, about two weeks from now will be re- released. And it's a, a mapping tool that has mapped about 315,000 unregistered Georgia citizens um, that have moved to Georgia in the last few years that we think are likely Democrats. Mm. And so we can literally you can pull up your street, your neighborhood, and we have put you know put little pinpoints on their map. Here's a new person who has moved into your neighborhood. Sounds on, super on your stalkery. <laughs> well, we I, you know we don't know their name. We just right, know, right, right. all we know is that the there's a, a national change of address yeah. database. We know that someone has moved to your neighborhood recently. And so you know what do we used to do? You know when a neighbor moved into, into bring cookies. Yeah, you know. So what a great opportunity to you know bake them a pie and you know you know bring them by one of my mayor Ted you know for Senate. Walk, you know, campaign cards and say, "Hey, welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> you should register to vote." Number yes, one, because you're yeah. not registered. Here's a pie, and oh, we have an election coming up for Senate. Have you heard about Mayor Ted? <laughs> Are you going to win? Yeah, you know, um, I feel really good about it. Um, again, I've been, you know, everywhere I go around Georgia, people have heard about Clarkston. They've heard about my work, um, you know, through whether it's Queer Eye yeah. or you know my effort to end the war on drugs, my work at the Sierra Club, my work in the labor movement work for the Democratic Party, um, you know, and that's just what we have to do with it. Just keep, you know, you know, getting more people to be aware. And I think when they become aware of what I stand for and what I fought for, um, you know, I, I get people's votes. So that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Ted. I love talking yeah, to you. you. I'm excited for you, you. and uh, hopeful for your victory. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Mayor Ted, I learned so much from our chat and was proud to have someone with a very humanistic approach fighting for our progress, while also bringing more jobs and revenue to the great state of Georgia. As for Little Left of Center, not only is this podcast available on your favorite podcast app, but it's also streaming on Decatur FM and Salesforce Radio. If you haven't hit subscribe yet, please make sure you do so you never miss an episode of these perspective-shifting conversations. I'm hoping you will continue to share these episodes. Please, please, please share it with whoever you know, whoever you don't know. The moment you click the share button and send it to people you do know, it is the clearest indicator that these messages are resonating. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week.